All right, we've been waiting a long time for this one. This Friday, January 26th, sees the premiere on Apple TV of Masters of the Air. It's made by the same people who made Band of Brothers in the Pacific. And if you, like me, are fanatically devoted to those shows, this new production, which focuses on a bomber group that was part of the 8th Air Force doing strategic bombing over Europe, is a big deal. Here at School of War, we are marking the occasion with two interviews I'm very excited about. Today, we have the writer and co-executive producer of Masters of the Air joining us. His name is John Orloff. Among many other credits, Orloff also wrote the D-Day and the Holocaust episodes of Band of Brothers. So he was basically already a hero of mine long before I knew his name. We will talk about how this new series came to be, what it was like to write and produce it, and of course, the history behind the show. And then next week, we have the author of the original book, Masters of the Air, itself a fascinating, extremely well-written document, well worth your time, Don Miller, joining us as a guest for a truly fascinating discussion of the show, the book, and also of the history of strategic bombing over Europe. It's been a real treat for me to record these, so please enjoy and enjoy the show. I'll definitely be watching this Friday. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. Never For maps, videos, and images, follow us on Instagram, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Aaron B. McLean. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by John Orloff. He is the writer and co-executive producer of Masters of the Air. He's got many other credits to his name before that. Most, most relevantly to this discussion, and most meaningfully to me personal as an enormous fan of this production, he is also the writer, I believe, two episodes of Band of Brothers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Two and nine. John, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, I, I think what would... Uh, I, you're the first pure artist we've had on the show, as opposed to, you know, writers who are writing about military history for, you know, for a part of their career. Though I suppose you're one of the things you might say is actually that that does characterize you. You're, you're certainly the first filmmaker of any kind we've had on the show. I'm really excited about this, just as I'm excited about Masters of the Air itself. Maybe start by just telling us how you got into this line of work, whether it's writing and filmmaking broadly, and then more specifically, you know, this vein of World War II that you've been tapping sure. for some time now. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll get to the World War II stuff as quickly as I can, because this is not about showbiz. But, but I grew up in, in an entertainment family. My father was a director. My grandfather was a director. My great-grandfather was a radio performer. So that's where I started. But I was always, always obsessed with history. And I am of a generation that loved World War II movies, you know, Patton, Guns of Navarone, these really classic 1960s, 1970s World War II movies. Hoban's Heroes was like a television show that was on every day in reruns growing up, you know? So I was really into the war. And I, very early in my career, I was really lucky to meet Tom Hanks. And he... In, over the course of a couple of meetings, ended up asking me if I would write an episode of Band of Brothers, which was the second episode, the D-Day episode. And he was really happy with my work on that. So he asked me to write another one, which was the episode where they stumble across the concentration camp. And then, you know, then I got a phone call about 10 years ago to to write a couple of episodes of, of the, the next one, Masters of the Air. And that turned into a really long odyssey of, of trying to get it made, culminating in us getting to make it. And, and it's really terrific. There's so many ways into this. And I, if, if you don't mind, can we can we linger on Band of Brothers for just a couple sure. of minutes before coming up to Masters of the Air? I expect probably most of our most of our listeners will see it, will have seen it. And if, and if yeah, you haven't, yeah. by the way, you should. And you, I, Colin will back me up here. I, I don't, I actually don't say this kind of thing to most guests, but the two episodes that you cite, the second episode, which covers D-Day itself and then Wabi Fight, 
are just two of two, two outstanding episodes in an already outstanding series. They're incredibly, they were meaningful to me. As, as somebody, my father participated as a young man in the liberation of Dachau. So the Why We oh, Fight episode. Wow. You know, I felt like I was watching my own family. Uh, this this was a sister camp. This was an affiliated yeah. camp of Dachau. So yeah. what you're, fu- wow, I'm getting like, um, so I'm getting a little emotional. They were so, still so, so he would have experienced something very, very similar. And so I, let me, just a big picture question about Band of Brothers and then the whole yeah. sort of subgenre that it spawned. Which is, how did that start? You know, we, we the, the, which, and by it, I mean the, the, the revival of, big miniseries because you know in the 80s you had it was banned yeah you know why why so go ahead you know tom hanks is incredibly passionate about american history very knowledgeable about american history and he had done apollo 13 and after he made apollo 13 he felt that the story could be a little deeper or, or, or broader and tell more about, about the, the Apollo mission. And so he made From Earth to the Moon, which was a eight part, I think. I, can't, I didn't work on it. I think it was eight parts. Might have been 10 parts, forgive me. And it, it met with a lot of success. And he, for HBO, and then he made sometime around the same time he was making Saving Private Ryan. And when he was making that film, which is, which is, Mostly fiction. I mean, it's it's very loosely based on on a kind of real story, but not really. And in his research, he read Band of Brothers, the Stephen Ambrose book, and really thought, well, maybe he could do with that book what he did with the Apollo missions. And so he got Steven Spielberg to read it. They agreed they should make it together. They took it to HBO, and HBO took an enormous gamble with Band of Brothers. It was incredibly expensive for the time and uncompromising in, in, in Tom's vision. And we had the incredible fortune to have had Dick Winter's blessing and we all had to <laughs> we all had to meet dick and and be approved in, in some ways and um which then allowed the other guys the freedom to talk to us and and that doesn't happen ever <laughs> you know i mean it was a really incredibly unique experience and that that led to episode 2 which was a really interesting experience because I, for a short time, was the world expert on Braycore Manor. I mean, I, I really was because Ambrose got stuff wrong. And, and the reason I know that is the, the first thing I did after I was hired was myself, and I think it was Bruce McKenna was on that one, maybe not yet. We, one of the other writers, we traveled to one of the famous 101st Air, well, not actually just Easy Company reunions. This would have been in 98 or 99. And they were amazing. That's a whole nother episode to talk about that. But, but the, 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 the important part was I sat down every single person who was alive, who was at Braycor Manor, and I interviewed each of them for an hour or two. And just took copious notes. And I'm not saying Ambrose didn't do that. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, whatever. But he got stuff wrong. And I knew what, you know, it was slightly, stories didn't always gel 100%, but why would they? You know, and I'm immensely proud of that episode because, yes, it's condensed. You know, it was a six-hour battle, not a... 30 minute one, but you know, it is as realistic as, as, as it could have been and, and stands the test of time and have the Dick Winters stamp of approval. Yeah. Not an easy thing to get. Well, let me ask you a question about something you just said, because I think it will, it will get us into some themes that touch on both Band of Brothers and then your work on, on Masters of the Air. So you interview all these veterans about their experiences in that battle, amongst other things, that, that action. And you get you get stories that conflict. In my own experience, I mean, it's hardly shocking. You would actually be shocked 
if you discovered the reverse. If you discovered right, exactly. that everyone had exactly the same account, you might start to suspect that something odd was afoot. Right, right, um, because right. it's just the nature of of combat, isn't it? That um, it's so chaotic and so fast moving that no one is really. And then and then your own memory plays tricks on you. And then you um, start telling the story, yeah. and the story sort of solidifies, you know, and especially this is now in, in 98 is 45 years later, you know? Yeah. So, you know, you, I could, I would start to hear the same pattern. If you ask somebody, well, tell me more about, well, they couldn't tell me more. They could just kind of tell me what they just told me yeah. again. Cause, cause yeah. that's the story that they've been telling, you know? I think it's Tim O'Brien who, who writes the, the Vietnam book, Things They Carried, who I think he takes this point to a really radical extreme where he, he makes some assertion to the effect of there really is no one story of, of combat. I, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know if on some sort of metaphysical level I accept that, but as a, as a purely narrative or, you know, epistemological. Yeah, I mean, I think yes right. and no, right? I think yeah. what you just said, you're right. Metaphysically, he's absolutely right because there, there are singular experiences, right? But the totality of those singular experiences is its own experience. And so, okay, so this 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 is all wind up for, for my actual question, which is, all right, here you are. You've got you've got this Ambrose book. You presumably got other written materials. Other stuff will have been written about it. You've got your interviews. No, no, no other written material. Oh, really? Okay, what interesting. Are you talking about nobody okay, knew who the fuck Breakor Manor was. <laughs> well, see, I live in a world that's conditioned by your work. So I've been to Breakor Manor. I've stood on that. But were you but were you there before nineteen ninety eight? Of course not. Of course no, not. No, no, and there was no internet basically. Yeah. In 1998. Yeah. So, you know, like, for example, we take a lot of shit in band for getting the Blythe story wrong. Hmm. Right. Blythe did not die of his wounds, as our like end thing says. Blythe hmm. actually had a really interesting post-war career continuing in the army, really hmm. honorably. Hmm. So the problem was you couldn't just type up Albert Blythe and get a bio on Wikipedia. Yeah. Those things didn't exist. So th the only way we would hear the stories was from the guys. And the guys all said he died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what are you going to do? You're going to believe them, right? Yeah. So so here you are, whether it's the question is in the 90s and you're dealing with episode two in Breakout Manor or just on a bigger scale, now here you are with the task of doing right. Masters of the Air. As the information starts to roll in, how do you how do you manage it? How do you decide what the story is? Like, what is your your not only your writing process, but I guess yeah. I don't have a name for it. Your historical your your analytic process. Yeah, to, to the facts, and then from there to the story. Well, that's what I try to do. Actually, is really understand what the the truth of the situation is, right? And and then try to find the drama in that already existing truth as opposed to taking a true story and turning it into some other thing that is more dramatically convenient. And what I mean by that is it, it really, if you're going to tell a true story, it's really important that you choose to tell the right true story, you know? And what I mean by that is Let's take episode two of, of Day of Days in Band of Brothers, because everybody knows it's a great reference point. So uh, I didn't. we didn't have to have episode two to only be Dick Winters on that day. There were a lot of other guys doing other things that day. This was about Easy Company. It was not about Dick Winters, you know? And I made the decision to say, no, no, let's just stick with this guy from, you know, that moment in the plane to the end of D-Day. And let's just tell that 24-hour story. Because as I said, when I was sort of saying this is my idea, I say, listen, if we as professionals can't make an interesting story out of a man who jumps out of an airplane in the middle of the night yeah. and in Nazi-occupied Germany and lands with nothing but a trench knife but by the end of the day he is captured and destroyed four german 105s or 88s shooting on utah beach and we can't make that interesting then we're not gonna you know be very good at our jobs 
you know? And so in the best way possible, it was don't screw it up. Like yeah. that's the story. Yeah. Don't screw it up. And in the process of that episode being made, there, there were some people who wanted to over-dramatize certain things or add elements. And those were tried and ultimately removed, you know, from the episode. So because it was enough, you know, and, and, and equally, you know, in Masters of the Air, you know, Tom and Stephen read part of, you know, read Masters of the Air and, and, and part of Masters of the Air, about 60 pages of it, is about this, this one bomber group called the Bloody Hundredth, the Hundredth Bomber Group. And like the 101st Airborne, this 100th bomber group had a, a really unique experience in a world of unique experiences. You know, I, I can't underscore this enough that, that, you know, Band of Brothers is about more than easy company. You, you know, it's about all of the companies that were in the ETO and have their own great moments like Dick Winters going down on D-Day, you know? And just this particular group, Easy Company, happened to have this really perfect way to tell a story, which is the story we all know of them. They were some of the best of the best. They were volunteers. They had this unique experience of D-Day to Berkdeschgaden. You know, and and a concentration camp. Like they 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 had these key. They experienced key moments as one unit that not all units did. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was why they were a really great group. I mean, there were many reasons why, but but it, it became don't get in the way of telling what these guys went through. And if I may, and I talked with with Don Miller a little bit about this, but I, I don't think I'm going to offend you. I may offend folks that you're, you're, you're colleagues with, but why I think Band of Brothers was so successful narratively and as a work of art and why I hope, obviously, Masters of the Air is, is the same way. I haven't seen it yet. And in my opinion, it breaks my heart as a Marine to say this, why, why the Pacific was a little less successful, though I enjoyed it and I own it and I've seen it multiple times, was in the Pacific, it seems like that decision was dodged on some level. And there's an, I, I know that I, at a high level, I know that the history of the different Marine regiments yeah, in yeah. Real, to, to some extent, the famous ones, you know, I know John Baslum, I know who all these people are. And even I am sort of struggling watching the episodes to try to figure out where I am and what's going on. And so if that's me, yeah. I can imagine that there are others who are significantly yeah, I, more confused. I didn't work on, on the Pacific. Yeah. I obviously know a lot of the guys who did and, and women. I love, I love it and admire it, you know, and it's just a different animal. It, it, it has that narrative. It, it made a narrative decision that, that makes it more complicated and difficult. But, but also, you know, they were trying to show a broader story, you know, and, and really hit the important things that, that people needed to know, you know. Well, if, if, if you, I'm going to make a brief pitch and then we'll get to Masters of the Air. But if the Marine Corps still needs, it's, it's really crusher killer miniseries yeah. historical miniseries in my pitch not that i want to do it but my pitch that somebody who does these things should do is the korean war and the yeah. story of the first marine division or at least some subset of the first marine division the invasion of the north the chosen reservoir and back to the yeah, sea yeah, yeah. a couple yeah. of great treatments of that many great treatments of that in writing but that yeah. would make as you're as you're a man who does these sorts of things you know if there's oh, somebody they're out so there, hard they're so <laughs> hard and and you have no idea how hard it was to get yeah. Masters of the Air made, even so with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. It took <laughs> 10 years. It took so 10 years to get it made. I mean, I've spent 10 years on one season of television, you know. Um, so let's get into it. How, yeah. So the decision had, from what you've just said, I have the impression that Hanks already knows that, that the 100th is his focus. And then how do you come into the story? So about 10 years ago, I got a phone call from Tom Hanks asking me if I would write a, a couple more episodes for the new one, just a couple of episodes. 
And yeah, I said, sure, that would be great. That would be great. I had read Masters of the Air and I thought it would be really exciting to do an Air Force show. And I don't know, six months, a year goes by and I get another phone call from him and said, you know, we have to start over for whatever reasons and we need somebody to write a whole Bible and, and, and just figure the whole show out. Are, are you up for that? And I was like, okay. And that was kind of a big task because Don's book is not about one unit like Band of Brothers was. So you read Band of Brothers, you go, oh yeah, this is about these people. You read Don's book and it's all over the place. It's about fighter squadrons. It's about the birth of, of the entire idea of strategic bombing and Italy and <laughs> interwar years and but it's also, he follows a couple different units, and one of them is the 100th Bomber Group, uh, which arrived in May of 43 with 36 airplanes. By October 10th, 34 had been shot down. And the thing was, the book didn't follow the 100th. It just followed a couple events that the 100th experienced. But that's not a miniseries. Right, that's not what the Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg miniseries are. That those are we follow these certain men through the war. So I had to figure out what else these guys did in the war besides a couple of missions that are mentioned in this book. So that turned into a year of doing exhaustive research about these four guys that we decided to make the show centered around three pilots and a navigator and map their missions. And, and then that opened a whole nother thing, which was combat, aerial combat. And that's what this show is about. It's about aerial combat, strategic bombing, daylight bombing, and what these men went through at 25,000 feet with an unpressurized cabin where it's 30, 40 degrees below Fahrenheit zero. Oh yeah, and people are shooting at them. And one of the things I decided really, well, as soon as I got the job and knowing everything that, that had worked in the process of making Band of Brothers, that I had to make a document, a Bible, that was really specific and really clear so when, so when we show a battle, great thing about the Air Force is they took copious after-mission reports. And, and the internet now exists as it didn't when we did band, but it does now. And so all those after-mission reports are online. So I could read them. So I could then... When you watch Masters of the Air and you see a combat sequence, and there's a lot of them, you, most of the time, not all the time, but almost all of the time, if you see an airplane hit by a rocket on its right wing, well, that's because that's how that ship got hit on that mission. If you see even in the background a ship going down because its number one engine is going down, it's probably because its number one engine went down. We know the name of that plane, and during all the special effects... They would color code the planes and keep track of, oh, that's our baby. Oh, and that one's Rosie's Riveters. And that, it's not like it's, it's that plane to the left blows up, you know. It's all, you know, there are exceptions. Don't get me wrong. It is a, it is a television show. But, but we really tried hard to get that kind of stuff right. Because, as, as I said to people, people went down on these planes. They're not... Star Wars things. And we owe it to them to get it as right as we can get it, you know? And that meant a lot to me. Talk about this core group of characters. And sure. in addition to the story of the hundredth, what was so compelling about them? And, you know, I'm not sure if spoiler alerts make sense. No, no, I think you can do any of this online yeah. and, and you would instantly, it's, it's kind of out there. Yeah. So, uh, we start with two pilots, two young, well, not that young, mid-late 20s when we meet them, but they joined the U.S. Army Air Corps 
to, at the same time in May of 1940, so a full 18 months before America's entered the war. And they do that because they want to fly airplanes. It's not, they're not joining the army. They're joining the Army Air Corps, and they're, you know, they get however many weeks of basic training, and then they're right into pilot cadet school. That's why they're there. And they become best friends. They're kind of unlikely guys. One, one is from Wyoming, this, this guy, Gail Clevin, nicknamed Buck in our show, well, his nickname in life. And then uh, his best friend, this other guy that joined at the same time, John Egan, Bucky is his name. So they were Buck and Bucky. And they were real old school cocked hats, 50 mission crush, toothpick in their mouth, scarves, that very first generation. And so they end up going through flight training, become pilots. Can't remember off the top of my head. I can't remember how they get into bombers as opposed to fighters. They end up in the same bomber group, the 100th Bomber Group. After Pearl Harbor, they're most majors by that point. They become squadron leaders, each, each with a squadron of eight ships in 1941-42, when this group is formed. And then they go over to England, as I said, in, in May of, of 43, each one leading one of four squadrons in the 100th Bomber group. So this show, I think people will be surprised. This show is not about one bomber crew going through the war. It's, it's about friends who served on a lot of different planes, actually. As, as a bomber squadron commander, if you went on a mission, you often were the co-pilot of whatever ship you're on. And then you're the lead pilot for all of your squadron. So you change ships, right? So we're focusing on Buck and Bucky, these two guys, best friends. They end up at the same air base, obviously. Go on a lot of missions in these early days. And then this is not a spoiler, but it is. They both get sh shot down within a couple days of each other. Both end up at the same POW camp in the same, and this is not made up, in the same bunk room yeah. at Stalag Luft 3 and, you know, continue to go through the war as best friends. At one point, Clevin, the Austin Butler character. Well, I, now I'm not going to, that's as far as I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> that's uh, fine. But that's then, fine. then also, so the, they're the, the sort of spine of the show, but a navigator, a guy called Harry Crosby, who starts as the worst navigator in the group, but ends up as the group navigator by the end of the war. And he's the only guy of those first 36 ships. He's the only air flight crewman to still be at their air base by the end of the war. Everybody else has been shot down or POWs or, or done their tour of duty. And so he's the one person that's on the air base the, the whole show. And then finally, we have one of the most amazing men I've ever written about, a guy called Robert Rosenthal. Yeah. Who, who was a, a replacement pilot. And his story is just phenomenal. He, he, he flies three missions in three days. His first three missions, three days. They lose 25 planes on those three missions. Each one with 10, 10 guys. So they lose almost twice the amount of people that were in easy company in three days. And on that third mission... They go up, I mean, this is all famous. They go up with 13 ships and Rosie's is the only one to come home. He ends up doing his 25 and he re-ups. Gets shot down, I think, three times? No, shot down twice. No, three times, three times. Somehow manages, well, I'm not going to say. Maybe he lives, maybe he doesn't. <laughs> you know, it strikes me that the title Masters of the Air 
it, it um, and this happens sometimes in film treatments of books, but it, it almost from everything you just outlined in the way in which you focus on the, the kind of vulnerability and youth of these characters, the title takes on a bit of an ironic tinge for the filmed production that maybe it doesn't have in the book. You know, they're masters of the air in one sense and in another sense, I mean, it's in the book too. I mean, okay. the idea is, I mean, it, it was a culmination of, of getting there. You know, the masters of the air, the Luftwaffe, you know, for, for, from until 1944, basically, yeah. you know, without a doubt. But, and that's one of the things we show, you know, as I said to you before, this, this show is not about one plane. It's, it's, it's on the group level. And the group is 36, well, depends on when in the war and how big the mission is, but a group is 36 planes. So we start with early 43, where, you know, an all hands effort was two, maybe three groups, which would be around 70 airplanes on a single mission. That's in June, July of 43 by you know, October of 43, we're already getting to 250 to 300 airplanes on a mission. By, you know, close to D-Day, we're up to 600 planes, 700 planes a mission. And then by, you know, the bombing of Berlin, you know, we're spending a thousand bombers up on a mission for one mission. Yeah. You know, it would take hours for them to go overhead if you were the target. Hours. They'd be under bombardment for three, four hours because it was just plane after plane after plane after plane. And that's part of our story. The, the, the industrial, the human and industrial cost was enormous. We've spent a lot of time talking about how you, you use you know, the historical record to tell this story. What are your major influences in terms of other film treatments of World War II? You were obviously raised and steeped in all of that. Was any of that influential? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It is Band of Brothers. I, and the reason I say that is because it was actually my first, it's my first job as a paid screenwriter. Yeah. And, and Band was always a different animal. You know, it was unlike anything that had really ever been made before. And because of its authenticity and, and that the men were such a part of the process of us telling the story, and because we had these production values that Tom and Stephen and HBO would give to it, it was this just other thing. And, and even great World War II movies that existed before it and after it that are fantastic. They're not that. And so Masters of the Air and the Pacific, you know, again, the Pacific is also you know, is different and Masters is different. I can't, you know, we can talk about that in a second. It's not Band of Brothers in the Air, yeah. you know, and the Pacific is not Band of Brothers in the Pacific, nor is Masters of the Air the Pacific in the Air. You know, it's its own thing. And, but, but what is common is this, real obligation to the real men who did this stuff, you know, in a way that not a lot of other productions, certainly before, had ever done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's the Audie Murphy story and, the, you know, there are true, quote unquote, movies about World War II that exist before band. And I'm sure I'll think of something tomorrow that is that comes to mind. But right now, that's what drove yeah. every decision I made in Masters of the Air was based on the stuff that we learned and did and were committed to in Band of Brothers. Well, the, the one that was sort of in the back of my mind, I was curious to know if you were going to raise it, was, was a 12 O'Clock High. 12 O'Clock you know, High is a great film. Yeah. Fantastic film. It is my, it is, it is, my two favorite films that have anything to do with this are Stalag 17 and 12 O'Clock High. You know, 12 O'Clock High has an actual connection to the 100th Bomber group because Saul Levitt, right? Isn't it Saul Levitt who wrote the book 12 O'Clock High? I'm pretty sure. Got it here. I can find it in a minute as you keep talking. Yeah. Is it who wrote the book? 
I'm, I, I, I've got it right here. So I know I'll, I'll look it up as you as you talk. So so but he was he he was in the hundreds. Right. And the Gregory Peck character is sort of a, a, a pastiche of a couple of different commanding officers of the hundredth. And so so it's very much part of the story of the hundredth. I mean, the first two commanding officers in theater of the hundredth both ha- were relieved of duty because of they, they couldn't handle the stress. They, they both had ulcers and, and gallbladder. I mean, they just, they broke down, yeah. you know, sending these guys. I mean, uh, it, it was horrible. It was horrible. And that's a, that's a fantastic film, but it's not true. It is, it is inspired by, and, and very well. I mean, that's, it is emotionally true, right? It is absolutely emotionally true. Those were the experiences, but it's not the same as Band of Brothers or Masters because these, these exact things happen to these exact guys. And that is a different animal as, as a writer. Yeah. You know, well, and, and interestingly, and by the way, Colin here says it's Cy Bartlett. Cy Bartlett is, is, oh, is right, 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 right. That's right. Right, right. Bartlett. Right. Um, he wrote. A, he also wrote a. Yeah. He 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 has a lot to do with the hundredth. Yeah. Yeah. So Saul um, Levent wrote wrote the who's also in the hundredth, ended up leaving and writing for uh, Yank magazine and Saturday yeah. Evening Post. So in in Twelve O'Clock High, of course, they they don't even really go into the air. It's all focused right. on exactly ecological dimensions of the war. And you were sort of you you have to do both in the way that you've done. Yeah. And, and if anything. We did less of what you just said, of, of what 12 O'Clock High did. This really wanted to be about air combat. Yeah. You know, that's something we haven't seen before. You know, trust me, I love Memphis Bell. It is an- I've raised on oh, Memphis Bell. Huh? I was raised on Memphis Bell. Yeah, I no, it's fantastic, it was a documentary. fantastic, fantastic film. Yeah. But, but- we're just on, we're trying to give you a a different experience. You know, I mean, I'm not joking when I say a thousand airplanes, like you're going to see a thousand airplanes. So say more about that and about the production of of this. What were the challenges and what what were you, you've talked a little bit about what you were trying to achieve, which is, but, but how, you know, what what were the problems you had to solve and actually. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really challenging shoot. Not the least of which because of it was COVID. We made right. it smack yeah. in the middle of COVID. And it was just a massive scale. You know, we built two B-17s that could taxi. You know, you can't, there's only a couple of, there's, I don't know, the number dwindles by the month, how many B-17s can actually fly. And the last I saw was eight, I think. And you would never want to use them in a production like this, you know, and you so we had to build them. We then had to build interior B-17s because we were going to shoot so much in, in B-17s. And then we built the volume. Have you seen like how they make the new Star Wars movies with all these like LED screens? And it was super complicated. And it was just, it was a very ambitious project. You know, I mean, quite frankly, nothing like it has, has ever been attempted. I, you and know, yeah. I mean, for example, like, like one of the things I, I, I like to, to, to share is the guy who is doing our special effects, our special effects supervisor, this brilliant man called Steven Rosenbaum, and he did the effects for the first Avatar movie. And he says, this is way more complicated than Avatar. And of course, when you kind of start to think about it, you go, oh, right. Nobody knows what a dragon really looks like, do they? Nobody knows how a dragon reacts when it gets hit by something, do they? Oh, but these B-17s better fucking look like B-17s and the wings better move the right way and the flaps better do the flaps and the chin and the this and the, you know? And it's a very different universe when, when you're trying to, to reproduce real things, you know? Yeah. And it's, it, it, I don't know exactly how to phrase this question, but it strikes me that 
the elements of success in certainly the that like the Hanks universe of film productions about World War II or maybe just about the American, you know, sort of enterprise. So you include yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Fortin in this. Put John well. Adams in there it's, and it's, it's about it's about there's something in the writing that's it's very much about procedure. It's about yes. um, Greyhound. Very. Oh, you, you, you have hit one of Tom Hanks's favorite words. <laughs> I'm serious. I might be still in John Miller, but, but, huh? but you could do it in a way that it's, you could do, you could just write procedure and it would be terribly boring. Right. So how do you, how do you get it right and focus on procedure without squeezing all the life out of something? You know, how, that's, you that is the, that becomes magic. And it has a lot to do with an actor and a director. Um, you know, one of the things that I will always think about Apollo 13 and even more Castaway is there's not a lot of people that you would watch by themselves <laughs> in, a, in a space this big for two and a half hours. I guess he's not by himself in Apollo 13, but he's by himself in Castaway. You know, that, that is, it's, you know, you have to be a really great actor to, to pull some of that stuff off. That said, you know, with a great director and, you know, if the procedure has been written in a context where the character is actually thinking something dur during this procedure, right? It's not a procedure for no reason, but like getting into this airplane, for example, when the Buck Clevin character goes down first on a mission and his best friend, Bucky Egan volunteers to lead the group on the very next mission to avenge his friend. We spend some time with him pushing buttons because that procedure has weight because he can't wait to get up into the air and avenge his friend. So it is revealing character, that procedure. Yeah. Second better example, actually, Rosie, the procedure of getting into an airplane as a pilot. So imagine the average lifespan at mid-1943 mid was 11 missions. So if you were on mission 12, you were on borrowed time. If you're on mission 13, you're on borrowed time. 14, 15, 16, all the way to 25. And everybody knew it, but they had to get back in that plane again. And so you can make that dramatic by, let's say you've had a traumatic experience and now you're a pilot and you've got to do your pre-flight check going around the plane, checking the wings and the tires and the, and the guns and the before you get into the plane, knowing you're probably going to die. You're not going to come out of that plane. So it's procedure and it's more than procedure. Yeah. And then, so the, for the, for the actors, when we talk about this site. I mean, the, 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 I hate to, the, the word trauma gets used and abused, but in, in this case, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to think of any other word that can describe how you would respond to the experiences that, your, your project is about 74% casualties. Yeah. Overall, that's including the end of the war when there aren't many. And, and also just, there's this dimension to it that is alien to me as, as somebody whose background is, is in the infantry of, and would make it worse is that you get to go home as it were each night. Exactly. Right. Meet your English girlfriend and, you know, exactly go to the bar. Right. and then in the morning you got to get up and do, I mean, that to me sounds absolutely horrifying. And, and we don't, we, we show almost none of this, but there was a lot of uppers and downers, a lot of pill popping for precisely that reason. It was brutal on them physically, psychologically. It was brutal on the English, you know, because these guys wanted to, they were having such existential experiences you know, when they went out on the town, they went out on the town, you know, and when they they wanted to be with a woman, they, you know, granted, there were a lot of women that, that you know, but it was it was intense. Yeah. You know, there yeah. was there was a lot of extremeness 
happening all around all the time. And it, it is a unique experience these guys had. You know, the, submar- the submariners had it really, really hard, but they were, and, and, and they're the only casualty rates higher than the U.S. Air Force, Air Corps, whatever you want to call it. But, but, but at least they were gone. You know, they had a tour of duty and they came home. You know, this tour of duty was just, as you said, you, you get up in the morning. On, you didn't go on a mission every day. You know, they would rotate crews and planes. But, you know, you'd wake up in the morning, fly to Munster, see 30 of your friends go down, get back, have weekend passes to London, go to London for three days. Then you have to come home and get back into that plane on Tuesday and just do it all over again. You know, it, it, it was unique and that's why they created the flat houses. You know, these, these, these houses, they didn't know quite what PTSD was yet, but that they were seeing it in these flyers in particular, these bomber crews very, very quickly for exactly that reason. They called them the Fock Wolf Jitters. And the flak, which was the AA guns, the anti-aircraft guns, they called them the flak house. Because if you imagine going through 10, 11 minutes of flak, you, you can't imagine it, actually. You're going to in my show. But just that was a horrible experience, you know, because these planes were not allowed to deviate course, right? So you just go, go, go. doesn't matter what's exploding next to you or how close they're exploding. You just stay in a straight line. And remember, there's only one pilot. So the other nine guys are just looking outside going, holy fuck, holy fuck. Excuse my language, but that's what they were saying. And, you know, then they get home. So, so they, would, they would have PTSD after just a few missions. Yeah. And so they would send these crews inland to sort of country manors, English country manors, for seven days of total R&R, you weren't allowed to wear a uniform. You, you could talk whatever you wanted to talk about, but, but, you know, they wanted you to just detox, basically, yeah. you know. Well, and also for the submarine crews, presumably, and I'm not an expert here, but, you know, you're out operating in the Philippine Sea or whatever, you know, finding your targets. And then for the most part, I imagine, is when on your way back to Pearl or wherever, yeah. there's probably a couple days where the threat is is not as elevated. Right. And so you have decompression time built into the mission itself. Whereas exactly. here, the whiplash is just intense. It I mean, was, it's hours either way. Constantly. It was brutal. And, and you will experience that in Masters of the Air. I mean, that is, that is one of the things we do really, really explore. Because that was what was unique, you know. One one last question for you here is I want, I want to be respectful of your time, but just everything we've just discussed and the sort of the burdens of, of showing the effect on humans of all this, what was the production looking for in, in the actors that you that you found? You're you're looking at younger actors who are at the front end of their careers. What what is the what is the through line? What are you what are you hunting for? You mean looking for an actor? Yeah. What, what, what about an actor gets them the well, role? Well, luckily that's not my department. I just sort of say, yeah, you're right. I like that guy. Once once they 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 show me because I think you're going to defer to Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg on on that kind of stuff. And in this case, with with Masters, I mean, I could tell you the story with Damien too. But with Masters, Austin Butler, who stars as Gail Clevin, had had worked with Tom Hanks on Elvis, and Elvis. He plays Elvis and Elvis hadn't come, hadn't even finished rapping. They were still shooting it when Tom said, you know, this guy is amazing. He would be an amazing Clevin. And of course, he was right. You know, we had a great cast. There's actual jobs, casting directors, they're called. Lucy Bevan and and, um, Olivia Grant were our casting directors. And... They did an amazing job filling out the other guys. I mean, really spectacular. And I think in particular, our, our, our four guys, those four guys that we follow the whole time, Crosby, who's played by this Brit, 
named Anthony oh God, Boyle. And he's actually going to play, he's in Manhunt, which is about the Lincoln assassination. And he, I think he plays John Wilkes Booth. And then this guy, Callum Turner, who plays John Egan, he's right now in Boys in the Boat. So he's sort of stayed in period, anti-Nazi stuff. And he's also spectacular. And then Nate Mann, who plays Rosie Rosenthal, I think he's the least known and will become as big as them all. Yeah. Well, I, I, I said that was the last question, but you-, you Go ahead. Me, I, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> tell, me the, tell me the Damian Lewis story, the, the Dick Winters story. Just, so another brilliant casting director, Meg Lieberman was the woman's name. And I can't remember whether she had seen Damien, but Spielberg, Steven Spielberg saw Damien uh, playing Laertes in a production of Hamlet and had him read for it off of that. And which is not how you expect to get, you know, Dick Winters, one of the now iconic American figures, you know? Yeah. And it was just brilliant. And I remember being one of the people who was like, what? We're hiring a Shakespearean Brit to play Dick Winters? Okay. It's wild when you think about it too, because to be found on the stage for, I mean, obviously stage and screen are, are different in terms of what they call for from an actor, but then the Winters performance itself is so restrained. I mean, it's Very. just a study in restraint. Which Clearly, is, as we yeah. now know, Damien is a genius and, yeah. and, you know, and he was then too. And, and he was so committed to the show and to, and to Dick. And he spent a lot of time talking to, to Dick. Um, and, and I think Dick was very happy with the performance. John Orloff, writer and co-executive producer of Masters of the Air. This has been a totally fascinating conversation. I, and I'm sure all listeners are looking forward to this show. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been a total pleasure for me. Thank you so much. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.